The following is a recording of Reverend Rainy Dankel in St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Virginia on November 10th, 2019. Thanks for listening. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her, and so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you, Lord Christ. May I have the grace to speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In this season of political contests, we are listening as candidates make speeches and answer questions. Some of the questions are straightforward queries about policy, but many of them have some hidden agenda to trap the candidate and perhaps to stir up controversy. How will the candidate navigate tricky waters looking decisive and yet measured in responding to complex issues? The Gospels show us many instances of Jesus encountering questions from fellow Jewish leaders. He's a rabbi a teacher whose traditional function is to offer instruction in the Jewish law. And a question and answer format is frequently the mode of instruction. But in many of his encounters, including the one we read about today, there's a hidden agenda. As Jesus' popularity increases, there's concern among leaders that he's stirring up the people. This unorthodox rabbi is departing from a system of laws that dictated many of the details of everyday life. Without such a system, the leaders fear chaos. So they look for opportunities to challenge him publicly, to reveal him as the rabble-rouser they believe him to be. We know there's such a sinister agenda in today's passage because Luke tells us that the questioners the Sadducees, do not believe in resurrection, and yet they are asking Jesus a question based on belief in the resurrection. Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. He doesn't address their hypothetical example. 
Let me say parenthetically that my brother-in-law is very grateful that we no longer have the tradition of marrying the childless widow, <laughs> since he would have been stuck with me. <laughs> Jesus uses the opportunity to talk about resurrection by drawing on a passage from the Torah that the Sadducees would certainly have not acknowledged as truth. Moses and the burning bush. He redefines the question of resurrection in a way that skillfully draws us into a deeper issue rather than setting up some academic debate. And I think his doing this is helpful to all of us as we try to answer the deep questions of our lives, as we look for meaning in the face of life and death. The resurrection is a huge topic. It is central to our faith. It is celebrated every Sunday. It's the theme of every funeral. And there is so much to say and to comprehend. Not in academic debate, but in lived experience. And I find Jesus' words today helpful as part of that experience. Jesus quotes Moses' reference to the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's a familiar expression, one we use constantly in worship. And then Jesus adds this suggestive comment. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to God, all of them are alive. In God, Jesus says, the distinction of living and dead is erased. We are all alive in God, the one who creates and loves us, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. The significance of Jesus' words is this. While we are reading a narrative an account based in an historical person living in a particular time and place, we are also looking through that lens into eternity, into the never-failing presence of God who contains and sustains all life. Jesus becomes the portal through which we glimpse this eternal presence as one of healing, love, and forgiveness. Jesus is pointing us away from academic debate and into a relationship that is nurturing and transformative. The eternal presence is the eternal present. All our human understanding of time held in simultaneous love and peace. Our walk with each other as followers of Jesus is aiming us towards this relationship, this assurance of God's never-failing presence through the ups and downs of our lives. Being held in the eternal present has significance for how we relate to those who have gone before us as well as those who will live after us. We had a glimpse of that experience in last Sunday's worship. As we observed All Saints Day, we remembered by name all those who had died, and we also welcomed by name a new Christian as she was baptized. Gathered around Jesus' table, we are in communion, in fellowship 
with all those who are alive in God's hands. This gathering of all in God is a powerful underpinning of our lives. We entrust ourselves and all whom we love to God's unfailing grace. And as our relationship in Christ is strengthened, we can understand ourselves and those we love more fully. As we feel ourselves to be forgiven, we learn to forgive the hurts, disappointments, and wounds we have received and inflicted. This is the lifelong project of our lives. It affects not only our relationship with our families and friends, but with the communities of which we are a part, including the communion we call the human race. Resurrection is the cornerstone of our work as meaning-making creatures. The sense that all of us, living and dead, are held in God's eternal present releases in us the power to grow in our understanding of our place in God's world. While our human conception of history makes the past seem fixed and immutable, in God's time, all is evolving. Seeing all of humanity in God's embrace suggests a new way of relating to our past, to those with whom we now live in God's hands. It suggests that striving for justice, mercy, and reconciliation is never too late. The facts may not be mutable, but the truth is always being revealed by God. And with God, all of us are alive and being transformed. This understanding of resurrection, of new life in God's eternal present, is significant for us at St. Paul's. It informs more than our personal and family relationships, as important as those are. It is also informing our relationships with our ancestors in the faith, and most particularly with those whom we meet in the history of this church and the city. Uncovering these narratives brings us closer to those who built the church and who proclaimed Christ to the world as they understood it. Coming closer to them and praying together with them in God's merciful hands, we are able more fully to understand and forgive and celebrate what is passed on to us. Novelist William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. That statement has always haunted me. He speaks of a web in which each of us is entangled. It feels like a prison from which we cannot escape. And indeed, we live with the consequences of our past, shaped and misshaped by the mistakes and foibles and yearnings of ourselves and our ancestors. What I find redemptive is the knowledge that the past is also held by God. As we discover these webs of entanglement, they can become a web of relationships in which we are transformed by God's forgiveness and mercy. The promise of new life is that we are held in God's never-failing light, which transcends our own histories and narratives. 
So then, rather than fearing our past or succumbing to paralyzing guilt and sorrow at the sufferings in which we have participated, we are called to live into the future in conversation with our ancestors and with all those who form the web of God's eternal care. As we learn their names and hear their voices, we come into a new understanding of how we are held together. Our idea of community is expanded as we find the multiple narratives rather than a simplistic single line that we may have held onto out of ignorance or fear. And we have fresh eyes for the future as we continue to understand God's desire for a beloved community. The work of expanding our understanding is the work of the Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Our visit there opened our eyes and hearts to the names and stories of thousands of persons trapped by slavery and white supremacy and tortured by unjust laws and cruel practices. We saw their names inscribed on monumental slabs. We heard their voices from enslavement and prison and grief. We came close to their stories and their suffering. Remembering, remembering, meant putting the pieces back together, restoring the lost members of the human family, acknowledging them in God's embrace, encountering them and making it personal. In addition to the slabs containing some 4,000 names, the memorial displays over 300 jars that contain the soil and remains of the murdered, rescued from unmarked graves. They bear witness to untold suffering that is finally coming to light. In one of our evening reflections as pilgrims to the site, we tackled the question, what do those jars say to you? We tried to place ourselves into the voices of the tortured, to hear them speak to us from their experience, to receive their truth to ourselves. It's difficult work to confront and relive our past, to hear the voices of suffering and to see the inhumanity of which we are capable. I believe these encounters would be completely unbearable were it not for our trust in God's mercy. To believe, to know that as we come closer to each other, we do so through the power of God's reconciling love. That the one who was willing to be lynched for our sakes is showing us the way to forgiveness and love. That the one who holds all souls in life will empower us through repentance to forgiveness. And that in Christ's love, we will find our place in the web of eternal life. God calls us to be in communion with those who have gone before and those who will come after us. God is at work to liberate us from the entanglements of greed and fear and violence that keep us from our full humanity. God is ready to help us overcome past grievances so that we can live more fully as a beloved community. Our task is to be awake, to be willing to confront each other in love, 
and to hear all the voices that can help us find our own places in this narrative and to dedicate ourselves anew to being part of the reconciling love of God. Amen.